But today we're going to pick back up in the book of James. And uh, it's actually been a few weeks as Matt taught and then as we went to, uh, to camp, to the retreat. But I mentioned the last time as I talked through this in chapter 3 that, that we are all theologians. That all of us here, that all of us outside, that everyone we come in contact with, we're all theologians. And that our lives, we, the way we think and the way we behave and the way we act is based on how we see God. What is our understanding of God? And then, conversely, the way we understand and see God, it also tells us how we see ourselves. And we can only see ourselves correctly if we see ourselves as God sees us. And so as we walk through this today, that is the hope, that we would see ourselves how God sees us. And for us to change, for us to do anything in our lives differently, we have to see God differently. As our change of how we see God and how we see ourselves and how we see man, as that changes, our lives change. And I would say that it's the most critical aspect of our lives, like, again, what we think about God, that everything hangs in the balance based on what we think about God. So our salvation, coming to Christ, being saved, being brought into His family, it hinges on what we believe and what we understand about God. And if we understand that, we're going to receive Him, we're going to ask for forgiveness, and He's going to give us grace, and we're going to be brought into His family. So eternity hangs in the balance. And as I share that about eternity, the hard truth about the gospel is that there's only two results. There's only two choices that we have. Either we will be with Christ, we'll be made one with Christ. When He returns, He'll take us home. When we go to heaven, we'll be with Him. We'll be one with Him. We'll see Him fully in His glory. We'll experience life as it was intended to be. We'll be image bearers completely reflecting Him. Or either we'll go to hell. Either we'll be separated from Him, we'll be far from Him, we'll be left to ourselves. And those are the only two options. That's how much our beliefs, how much our thinking impacts our lives. And not only does it impact our salvation, but it also impacts our sanctification. It impacts how we grow. If we've come to Christ and we've realized that truth, now what we continue to think about God changes our lives right now and how our lives are lived out. So as we've gone through chapter 3, James has gone over and over again. He's given us this diagnosis about our heart. That we have a destructive heart. That we have a damning heart. That we have a heart that we cannot trust. And that we're in critical condition. And, and that's where we finish. And I told you, I said, I want you to think about this. I want you to focus on this. I want you to feel the weight of this diagnosis. That it would overwhelm us. And at that time, I didn't realize it would be three weeks with Matt teaching and going on the retreat. But we've had that time to, to grieve. We've had that time to consider it. We've had that time to think about our hearts. And as we were in sermon prep this week, this Wednesday night, it was the most, I guess, impacting time I've had of sermon prep for the, the end part of it and then my time since then. And it was shared with me. There were some concerns about, are we focusing too much on how bad we are? 
Like we, we need some hope. We need some. We need to focus on on the hope that's to come. We need to have, make sure we have an understanding of what Christ is going to do and how much He loves us. We talked about how different people would experience that and, and what the different situations are. And I had a hard time with that. I struggled through that. I was not sure how to take it. When I left Wednesday night, and by the time I got home, it was about 11.45. I got ready for bed. It was a little after midnight. And I laid there and I couldn't go to sleep. I got up. I just got in the floor and started to pray. I'm like, God, you've got to speak to me. You've got to show me. Like, am I not teaching what's in your word? Am I saying what I want to say? Am I saying what you want to say? I've come to you. I've asked you to show me this. What do you want me to tell this body, Lord? What do you want to speak to us? I woke up the next morning. That's the first thing I was thinking about as I'm driving to work. That's what I was thinking about. It was hard for me to do much work at work on Monday. I prayed throughout that time. I talked to other people. I searched out, Lord, like, what do you want me to share in these next 10 verses? And Lord, show me. I don't, I don't want to share what I want to share. I want to share what you have for me. And I felt like in that, as I searched, as I prayed, that God gave me a word. And I want to share that with you guys. And that this is my hope. As we go through this passage and as we focus on what James has to say for us. It's from 2 Corinthians 6, verses 8 through 10. And Paul is writing to this church in Corinth and he's already written this first letter, which wasn't extremely encouraging. And he says in verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And that's my hope. If I grieved you, that it would be a godly grief. That it would lead to repentance. And as we walk through this today, that we would understand that the only intervention, the only thing that solves our problems is the gospel. And as I have studied this and looked into this and considered this, the gospel is way too severe. It's, it's way too radical. It's extreme. It's too extreme for us. It's too extreme for any culture. It's too extreme for anyone in any situation. That we don't understand the depths of our depravity, the depths of our issue, the depths of our sin, and yet we don't understand the hope that we have in Christ. We don't understand His love and His, and His acceptance of us. It's far more than we could ever imagine in each direction. And so I want to give this definition of the gospel. It says we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And that's what we've been talking about. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And as we think through that, that extreme relationship, that that's the only type of relationship that will transform us. That we have to hear the truth about ourselves. We have to come face to face with that. But if we hear just love over and again, love and again, love and again, 
that it's just sentimentality. We'll feel better about ourselves, but we won't see ourselves for who we are. But if all we hear is the truth over and over and over again, and not hear the love, then it's just harshness, and we won't know what to do with it. And so as we consider the gospel, as we consider these passages, I pray that, that this merciful commitment that we see from God in this passage, that it would strengthen us to confront that truth about ourselves that James has been speaking. And that that truth would move us to cling to him and to rest in him. But we must move. We can't be stuck and just focusing on how low we are and how bad we are and how sinful we are. We have to move from there. And so as I was looking at the letter, as I, I read through James several times this week and just like, okay, God, am I sharing this appropriately? Is this what you're saying? And, and as I look back at the first message that I preached on James, as I gave this introduction, this background about the book, and that throughout James, it's many imperatives, there's many commands as to what James wants this audience to do as he's teaching them. It's actually a hundred... Where I've got 108 verses and 54 of them are commands telling us what to do. But as I looked at chapter, the end of chapter 2 and all through chapter 3, there are no commands. There goes this, this long stretch where James quits telling us what to, what to do and he starts telling us about this theology. He wants us to understand. His last command was chapter 2 verse 12. He says, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Speak and act. And then he goes directly into this theology about faith without works. He says, I want to show you. you. You profess all these things, but what you do doesn't match what you profess. And then he goes from faith without works, he goes into this idea of our hearts. I want you to understand your hearts. All of these actions, where they're coming from, is your heart. Your heart is destructive. Your heart is evil. And that's where this is coming from. That's why your actions don't look like what you profess as your faith. And he goes for over a chapter and never tells us what to do. He just wants us to understand. And he ends in uh, chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That we would be able to live in a way that would honor and glorify God with wisdom that results in a meekness, that results in a humility. And so this humility is required. For us to speak and act as those who are going to be judged under this gospel, this, this gospel of freedom and liberty that Christ has given us, we have to be meek. We have to be humble. And I'm thinking how his audience would have felt. We talked about that a lot Wednesday. Like, well, so how would they have felt? And so here's James. Here's their pastor. He had taught most of them. He had pastored over them. They had been sent out. They were undergoing all of these difficulties, all these situations where they were being persecuted. And he's coming here and has the nerve to go through. And let me tell you again about how sinful you are. Let me tell you again about how your, your works don't match your faith. Let me tell you again about the depths of your heart. And I'm thinking they would say, does he not understand my situation? Does he not understand what we're going through and what we're having to deal with? And hopefully that we feel the same way that they felt. 
My thought is that they would be grieved. My thought is that they would be, in some sense, like, okay, this is enough. I don't want to hear about this anymore. Tell me what to do now. Tell me what to do. Tell me how are we going to move from this place and move to hope. And so that's the idea. And as we go through this word, that's why we don't jump around from verse to different verse, from book to book. It's the, the idea is that we would understand this as the original audience understood it. That we would feel as much as we can what they felt. And then we would take that understanding, we would take that that we receive from it, and we would apply it to our context. We'd apply it to our lives. And so when was the last time that you cried out? When was the last time that you said, Lord, I am helpless. Lord, I don't know what to do. Lord, I need you to show up. Lord, I'm at my end. I don't know how to move forward. I've tried to change. I've tried to do all these things. I've tried to be different. I've tried to live in a way that would demonstrate you, that would proclaim you. And it's not happening. It's not working. And my concern is that some of you, if you've come to the Lord recently or you're growing in your faith, you might have been to this place of brokenness much faster than some of others. And that you've been grieving over this longer. And that your grief might be more real. Because some of us, we've heard this over and over and over again. I know this Brit. I've heard this Brit. My heart is hard to this Brit. And I'll take what you said and hopefully an hour from now I'll remember it. And when I go home, I'll put that in my mental Rolodex with the sermons on my, my issues and my sin. And I'll file that away and when I need it, I'll access it. But I've heard this, this is nothing new. And so I pray that God's word would penetrate that. I pray that God's word would bring us all to this place of grief. That we would be distraught. That we would not know what to do because we understand how sinful we are. And so that's when James brings it back to the present. And that's where we are today in chapter 4. He's going to look at their particular situation. He's given them all this theology, all this understanding. And now he says, I'm going to bring this home. I'm going to land this. This is what's going on in your life amongst this body. And he talks about their situation. And then he gives them an instruction for response. This is what I want you to do in response. And so the sinful behavior that, that he first points out. In the first part of verse 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? They were fighting amongst themselves. What causes these sinful actions that you guys are doing? What is causing you to act in a way that doesn't reflect the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you? And I thought about our body. I'm trying to make application. What does this look like for us? What are, what are our issues? If James were to come here, what would he say to us? What does God want to communicate to us? And I've talked over and over again about being in the Word. And as people will come to us, or they'll be in a situation, they'll be distraught. They'll, I need counsel, Brett. I need you to tell me what to do. This is a situation in my life. The first thing I'd ask is, well, have you been in God's Word? And most of the time, repeatedly, the response is, because you don't want to actually tell the pastor, no, I haven't been in the Word. You sort of say, well, uh, not, not as much as I'd like. 
And, well, a couple times last week, but it hasn't been consistent. But, you know, I was in my car and driving and I, I prayed some then. And then I had this little break at work. Yeah, I was praying then. I'm like, no, did you, were you in the Word? Did you hear from God? Did you read into His Word? Well, well yeah, a little bit, but not that much. And we think about sometimes just sin is what we do, what we do that's wrong. But it's also what we don't do. And that I know in my life that when I'm not in the Word, I really don't have any place to complain. I don't have any place to say, somebody tell me what to do. God is here. He's waiting. He wants to tell us what to do. He wants to speak to you. But you have to be in the Word to hear that. And so in many ways, that's our situation. And so think about, what are you struggling with right now? What are you struggling with this morning? What have you struggled with this week? Are you fearful about a decision? Are you having a hard time loving your spouse, serving your spouse? Do you hate your job? Are you angry with someone and you can't forgive them? Are you envious about someone else? Do you want to be in someone else's situation? You don't want to be in your situation, you want their situation. Are you struggling with a secret sin, something that no one knows about? Whatever that behavior, whatever that issue, whether it's in your life individually or as our life together collectively as a body, we have to get to the heart of it. We can't just focus on the behavior. We have to say, well, what's the heart? What's the heart of this situation? What's my heart in this? And so that's where James goes in verse, the rest of verse 1 and through verse 3. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Ultimately, like James told us, and he's repeating it again, it's about your heart. Don't look too far. Don't look to other people. Don't look to your situation. Look inward. You're being controlled. All your thoughts and all your actions are based on your passions, are based on your desires. That's what's leading to this sinful behavior. And we're good at hiding that. Putting on a face and acting like everything's okay. But as I get to watch my kids, and particularly Annalise, I can see her passions. I can see what she desires. She wears it on her face. On Friday afternoon, Nidia and the kids were at the library, and I was coming home late. We needed to go to the Target, so I met them at Target so we could be together. We met at the Target at the mall. And we go inside, and we needed flip-flops for the girls. They needed flip-flops for the summer. And of course, as we go to look for flip-flops, and Annalise, who doesn't need flip-flops, is picking out flip-flops. And she starts to pull off all the ones she likes, and the brightest, the pinkest, the ones with the flowers, those are the ones she wants. And every time we take the flip-flops away and put the flip-flops back on the shelf, she starts to cry, and she's upset. And then after a few times, she finds this toy purse off the shelf that she starts to carry around and she forgets about the flip-flops and she's so happy that she has this purse and she's focused on this purse and she's carrying it around and we forget about it because she's being quiet she's sitting there with us she's not doing anything she shouldn't be doing we go through we shop we get what we need and we go to the checkout and she still has this purse and so the decision has to be made are we going to allow her to have this purse or she has to put the purse back well, she has to put the purse back. And so as we take the purse away from her, what does she do? She gets distraught. She's upset. She's going to cry again. Like, I want that purse. 
we had already decided my wife had bought a pack of Skittles that we were going to share as a family. This is the weekend. We're living crazy, right? It's Friday night. So we get this pack of Skittles, and as Annalise is crying about the purse, which is just put back on the shelf, we give her, here's two Skittles. And we start to share these Skittles. She gets a smile on her face. She's, she's satisfied again. She goes on. We decide, hey, let's go ahead. There's a couple stores we need to go to in the mall. Let's walk through the mall. Let's get those things taken care of. And so my kids are following me, and I've got a bag of Skittles, and I'm giving them, you know, two Skittles, two Skittles, two Skittles. Everybody's happy. Everybody's good. We sit down at a bench. Nita goes into a store. Like, hey, we're just going to wait here for you. I've got my Skittles. I'm armed. I can take care of this situation. We start going through the Skittles. I'm rationing them, right? I know how much time she's going to spend in the store. I need to hold on to these. I need to make them last. And Nidia stays in the store, of course, longer than she anticipated. And I ran out of Skittles. And Annalise got upset. Her face went down. She started to cry. And then, because I'm in charge on Friday nights, we decided, and my wife, Nita, said, she's at home with Karina, sick, but she said, make sure you tell them this, this was your idea, that we went here because of you. So we went to In-N-Out to have a burger. So Skittles, first Skittles, and now a burger. And we get to In-N-Out, and we sit down, and Annalise is enamored with the fries. She's like, oh, she's just, she's, she, she's going on the fries, she's climbing on the table, she wants these fries. She has a cheeseburger in front of her, but she's going for the fries. And we're like, no, no, you can't have any more fries, you have to eat your cheeseburger. Again, she's upset, she's distraught. Then we move on from finally, she forgets about the fries, because we got a chocolate shake to all share before we go. And then she's loving the shake, and she's happy about the shake. And then we have to go our two separate ways, and then two cars, because we came separately, and the shake goes with me, of course, and then Annalise is frustrated because the shake's gone, but then she had stickers. And I share that because it's so easy to watch her, and it's so easy to see her go up and see her go down and see her go up and see her go down. But that's how we are. Our desires, our passions, what we want for us, that's what impacts us the most. Sometimes we cover it up, sometimes we don't. But we're pushed here, we go there, we want what we want, and I want it now. And so what are you desiring? What is it that leads your passions throughout the week? What is it that you're after? What is it you want to have? Is it just you want comfort? I want to just get out of this situation. I just want what I want and I want it now. God wants us to desire Him. He wants us to seek after Him and He'll give us the desires of our heart. That's what He wants from us. We've got to take our focus off of that and put our focus on God. Because anything else that you desire besides God is ultimately something you want for yourself. It's about you. And in a sense that you become your own idol. I'm, it's about me and about putting me first and about putting what I want. And James says, you don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. And a lot of times, because we've learned to mask it, I don't want to ask because I don't want help. Because if I get help, then I have to give acknowledgement or the honor in a sense to someone else. As I was processing through this passage and I was struggling with this since Wednesday night and I'm praying and I'm reading and I'm, I said, I need to talk to Matt. I need to, to get someone else's perspective on this verse. I need to hear from them. But as I did that, there was a part of me that didn't want to talk to him. You know, I want to figure this out on my own, God. I, I, I want it to be what, what you've shown me, not what you've shown somebody else to tell me. I, I want to understand this myself. And how arrogant is that? And how selfish is that for me to want that? But then when I decide to ask, he shares with me all these things. He gives me these great insights. 
And I'm like, okay, that's really cool, but is there some way I can still figure it out in my own way? So what I say is my thoughts and not his thoughts. You know, I asked him for it and he gave it to me, but yet I still didn't want to use it because it was still about me. And I can tell you guys, as we pray, one of the prayers that you might hear me repeat is like, God, this is for you. This is not about us. God, this is for your glory. This is for your fame. As we gather here together, as we do discipleship, because that's my bent, is that I can get tied up into that, my identity, who I am. If I have a good day or a bad day, if I'm having a great week or a bad week, it's based on how we do as a church, based on what's going on in the body. How are people responding? Was the sermon good? Did people receive it? And God doesn't want that. And so we have to pray against those things that we know are our bents, are our passions, are our desires. And so James moves on to this misunderstanding that they had of the gospel. And a misunderstanding sometimes that we have of the gospel. So he told them their sinful behavior and the, the issue is from your heart and these are your heart issues. Now let me tell you how you misunderstand the gospel. And so in verse 4 and 5 he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God has given himself to us. It's an amazing, incredible thing. Like that he has made this commitment to us, this covenant relationship that, that we can't break. He says, I am yours. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I've given myself to you. And we hear that. We experience that. We come to him in salvation. We become his sons and daughters. And we say, thank you very much. And what James is saying and what we do, what I do, is we turn and we are unfaithful in a sense that we cheat on him. That he's like this, this, this groom that's come before us and he's pledged his love to us. He says, this is all I've done for you. I've given myself to you. I'm serving you. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. It's going to live inside of you until I return. It's my promise. You've been sealed. I'm going to come back for you. Wait for me. Love me. I'm going to love you. I'm coming for you. And we go off and we look for someone else. And we have to understand that that's the depths of our sin. It's like we have been unfaithful to God. We can't have both. We can't have God and we can't have the world. We can't have God and have these passions and desires that come from our destructive heart. He wants our full devotion. He is jealous. He's given us everything. And He wants everything in return. He won't share us with anyone. And as I thought about that, and I remember in sixth grade, my first girlfriend, I'm not going to say her name, but she had moved in from Alabama. So, But at that time, Swatch watches right, were really big. They were all colorful. There was no two swatch watches that were the same. And, and it was really, if you were really cool, you were like me and you had like three or four up your arm, right? So for every birthday, for every time I save my money, I'd buy another swatch watch because you had three or four swatches. You were really cool. And so when you would go with someone, 
when you would have a girlfriend, part of the instruction, part of the process was you had to exchange swatch watches. You would usually give them their watch, I mean your watch, and they would give you yours. And I had heard about this girl. And I heard that if you went with her, the only way to get your watch back was if she broke up with you. That if you broke up with her, your swatch was gone. Your swatch was destroyed. And so I was very selective of my three swatches, which one I gave her, because I knew the time would probably come when she would want to destroy my swatch. <laughs> she wouldn't share it with anybody else, right? And in that sense, Christ won't share us with anybody else. And He has the right... He has the right. He has every reason to divorce us. He has every reason to leave us after we've left Him. He has every reason to break our hearts. He would be fully justified to do that. But look at the next verse. Verse 6. It says, but He... And I've told you guys over and over again, those are the most incredible words in Scripture, but He, but God. And this is where the hope comes. This is where our position in Christ comes. This is where our blessedness comes. It says, but He. But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposed the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So James is moving from their situation to this instruction now how to deal with their situation. He's telling us, okay, this is what to do. And simply put, God opposes the self-focus. He opposes the self-concern. And He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to those that are God-focused. And grace is... This merciful kindness that we don't deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve, but He gives us a knowledge of Him. He gives us His love. He gives us strength to do what He's asked to do. But we have to be humble. We have to be in this condition of humility. And that humility literally means that I've been brought low, and usually it's been brought low with grief. That I have a low position. And as it's talking here, it's talking about our spiritual position. It's not talking about our worldly position. It's talking about our spiritual position. And particularly, as James will say later, it's talking about our position before God in His presence. But our part is to submit. He says, submit yourself, therefore, to God. If I realize my issue, I realize my heart, I realize my place, my humility before God, I'm going to submit. I'm going to say, God, not my way, not my thoughts, not the way I want to do it, but God, the way you want to do it. Let me submit. Let's do what you want to do. The word here actually has a picture of coming under this, this command of a military leader. And you know when you go into the army, you do what the sergeant says. You don't think for yourself, you let them think for you, and as soon as they say it, you do it. And that's what submission looks like. That we would give up ourselves, and that we would carry this new burden that God has for us. We would be, we would be our commander, we would listen to Him. God is in control. I'm not. It's His will, not mine. You lead, God, I'll follow. 
That's the position he wants. And when we take that position, he gives us grace. When we take that position, God begins to overwhelm us. When we do that, he'll give us grace that will enable us to do all these things that we can't do on our own. He'll give us this grace to obey all these commands that he's telling us. He says, I want you to resist the devil. I want you to draw near to God. And because of his grace, the devil will flee and he'll draw near to us. But he said, first be humble. Be humble and I'll give you that grace. Be humble first. I'll give you grace. Draw near to me. I'll draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee. And then he restates it. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Understanding the truth of who you are, you need to mourn. You need to grieve. You need to cleanse your hands, change your actions. And as you change your actions, you need to focus on your heart because that's the source of your actions. Purify your heart. And as I look through this and pray through this, I think it's like God wants us to attend our own funeral. He wants us to come to this place where we realize who He is, we realize who we are, and we say, God, I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to, I'm going to weep, I'm going to mourn, I'm going to be wretched. My laughter is going to be turned to, to gloom, to mourning. But that's what we need to do sometimes to let go of ourselves. And I would tell you that this James' teaching based on Jesus' teaching and the thing that Jesus continued to say is if you want to find your life, if you want to find this life that I have for you, you have to lose yours. You have to die to yourself. You have to pick up your cross and lose your life. And then you'll find it. And so all this is difficult. All this is hard. It's hard to hear. It's hard to speak. But we can't stop there. In verse 10, it's the most important verse. He sums it up and he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. We go through all this because He's going to exalt us. And it says, humble yourself. Don't feel bad about yourself. Don't go in a corner and think, how terrible am I? Don't self-loathe yourself. Don't, don't just focus on how bad you are. It says, in the presence of the Lord. All he wants us to do is compare ourselves with God. And as we compare ourselves with God, we would be moved to this grief. We would understand how holy he is and how sinful we are. And yet, how much he loves us. He loves us anyway. That he has made us acceptable through His Son, that He's pursued us, He's committed Himself to us, and that He gives us this grace to do what it is that He's called us to do. That He'll raise us to the highest place, that we'll be with Him. It literally means that the highest point, and that's with Christ, that we would stand firm in Him, that we'd be one with Him. And so that's our purpose is that we would get to that point where we would humble ourselves, where God would give us grace, and then we would live a life that would honor Him, and that would demonstrate Him, and that would proclaim Him. It would bring Him glory and Him fame because we've let go of our lives, and we want our life to be about His life. And that's the gospel. That's the second part. But we have to go through both parts. 
We have to understand how severely flawed we are before we can understand how amazingly loved that we are. It must be both, and it must be in order. We have to go to the cross to be able to be resurrected. The cross had to happen first so that the resurrection could occur. It wouldn't make any sense if we just focused on the resurrection and we never understood the cross. If Jesus would have come and been resurrected, no, he had to go to the cross, he had to suffer, he had to die, he had to acknowledge our sin, he had to pay the price for our sin so that the resurrection would have meaning. But the resurrection is good news. And so this process that James has taken us through, it's a process that would work in any area of our lives. That there's nothing that we're going through, there's nothing that we're struggling, that we can't look at this. He wants us to, to see the truth. The first thing is the truth. The first thing is to go to His Word. The first thing is to understand who God is, and therefore who I am. And as we understand that truth, that truth leads us to humility. And as we understand our position before God, that humility would lead us to submit. Say, God, not my way, God, your way. God, what do you want? Not what do I want in this situation. What do you have for me? What will bring you glory? And as we submit, we receive that grace. God will give us grace. We need that grace. We needed that grace to know Him. We needed that grace to come to Him. We need that grace to grow in Him. And the only way we can grow in Christ, the only way our life can be transformed, that we might look more like Christ, is if we continue to receive this grace. And it says here that we humble ourselves and we receive grace. And receiving that grace, it makes us righteous. And we think of righteousness, I think, sometimes in a wrong way. But one perspective of righteousness is that we're accepted. The only way that we're accepted by God is by His grace. So receiving this grace, it leads us to righteousness. It leads us to be accepted by God. And being accepted by God, then we're blessed. Then we're happy. But this is true happiness. This is being exalted. That I would be in a place where I'm accepted by God, where He's brought me into His family. He's made me one with Him. And so we need more submission. In verse 7 he says, submit. Submit. Submit to my will, not yours. Submit to my desires, not your desires. Then I'll give you grace. I give grace to those who are humble. And so if whatever situation you're in, whatever your understanding of God, whatever your understanding of who you are in Him, He wants you to submit. And then He will give you grace. He'll give you that understanding. He'll give you that hope. He's going to raise you up. And I tried to think of an illustration that I wanted to leave you guys with. Like, what does this look like to submit to God versus trying to what I do over and over again? I'm just going to try this through willpower. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to really give my efforts. And I'm going to try and love my wife. I'm going to try and discipline my kids appropriately. I'm going to try and love on you guys the way I should. I'm going to try really hard. And I want to think, well, what does it mean to submit Versus just trying out of my own power. And I couldn't come up with an illustration. Because I think it can look the same. But you know in your heart, and God knows in your heart, what is your motivation? Have you submitted to Him? Are you letting Him lead and guide and direct you? Or are you just trying to do this out of your own willpower? But all of that starts with seeing yourself for who you are. And I just want to be very clear, it's not to self-loathe. It's not to focus on yourself and get so down about yourself and just get stuck there. It's just that I would see myself for the reality of who I am. And then I would be so much more grateful for what God has done for me. 
And as we did that, understanding this, having this theology, thinking this way, then we would have joy as we go through these trials, right? James started this out. I want you to experience joy. Consider it pure joy as you go through all these difficulties, as you go through these trials. And he beats them over the head again and again. Your faith, your works don't match your faith. Your heart is, your heart is destructive. Your heart is damning. But I want you to have joy. It doesn't make much sense. It doesn't seem right. But we have joy understanding who God is, understanding who we are, and submitting. And again, it doesn't mean that we walk around with big fat smiles on our faces and we're giddy and happy and we're always laughing. But it means I have joy because I know what God is doing and I know what God will do. And so that's what we need more of. I promise that submission will lead to joy. For us to love each other, we have to submit. For us to be effective in this neighborhood, to show love to our neighbors, we have to submit. For us to be the parents and the spouses that, we want, that God wants us to be, we have to submit. For us to be the sons and daughters to our parents that we need to be, we have to submit. We have to start in that order. Don't start with second things first or you won't get first and second things. You have to start with the first step and go to step two. You can't jump ahead. But we want to just go to give me grace, give me grace, give me grace, God. And God says, no, no, I need you to see yourself. Now humble yourself. Now submit. Then I'll give you grace. That's how God's works. That's what I see here. And so that's what I want to encourage us to do. And so as I was at McDonald's yesterday, um, as I was thinking about this, that's my office over there on Topanga. And I was like, God, not me, not me. God, your will, not my will. And I thought about this song. And I felt silly because there I was in McDonald's. I always sit in the back corner because I end up crying over there as I go through this and I feel like sometimes as God speaks to me. But I pulled this song up on my phone. I'm like, this is, this is what you're saying, God. And it broke my heart because I saw I don't do this over and over again. I try and figure it out on myself. I try and do it of my own. I just won't go before God admitting who I am and submit. And so as we walk through this song, I've asked Ernesto to sing. And he's going to sing the first. Sing through it once. And instead of us singing, I want us to listen. I want us to consider these words and I want us to think about our lives and about how we approach God and about how we approach these difficulties. And then as we go through the second time, we're going to stand and I want us to stand together and that this would be our cry.